You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, um, before we start, just a couple of, I'm going to try to start bringing this kind of things with some regularity, which are resources. If you're in the acquiring toolkit mode, okay, most guys like tools, and so theological tools, this uh, pocket dictionary of theological terms, it's a pocket dictionary, it's really small, I don't remember what I paid for it, $5.59. Sure, it's more than that now, but it it's 300 theological terms that you can just have a quick uh, definition for. So as you're reading, perhaps you'll come across a word you're not sure of it, and and uh, this is just a handy resource. I know there's Google, but this is a handy resource. Okay, so I recommend that one to you. And here's one more. This is uh, oh, I have to go out a little bit. This is uh, charts of Christian theology and doctrine. So it's a spiral-bound book, yay thick, containing all kinds of of charts, uh, such as was photocopied and handed to you for tonight, but just others, just to give you a sample of the kinds of charts that you would find in there. So I'll have to continue to get bigger because my eyes aren't that good. So... That's a look at the different views of the means of grace among strands of Christendom. So all the way from the Reformed view, saving faith by efficacious grace, over to the Roman Catholic view, which is ex opere operato, that is, that the the sacraments uh, confer grace. So by contact with the sacraments, one receives saving grace. Obviously, we think that is profoundly wrong, but it is nice to see it laid out on a chart. It helps you to slot some things in. There are Arminian position, a Lutheran position, and so forth. So it's just loaded with these kinds of charts. Okay. Yes? Where did they become wrong? Where, where, I don't have it. You've got Arminian, Lutheran. Yes. Which one of those? Which? We're obviously right. Yes, we are right. What about the others? What about the others? We are going to look at the others. And we would not deny that there aren't uh, fellow brothers in Christ in, those, in the Lutheran camp and in the Arminian camp. We would just suggest that they're off the beam. Yes? I will show the author again. What about in the Roman Catholic camp? What about in the Roman Catholic camp? Can there be a Christian in a Roman Catholic church? Yes. Can there be a good Roman Catholic who's a Christian? No. Since the Roman Catholic Church declared an anathema on the gospel, that kind of makes it hard to be a good Roman Catholic and a believer at the same time. But yeah. So, Charts of Christian Theology and Doctrine by uh, Wayne House, H. Wayne House. Yep, there's a... That's uh, too small. If you want to look at it at the break, certainly can look at it. But there's a number of these kinds of spiral-bound books out there on different aspects of theology and and Bible doctrine, they're super helpful, and they're all reproducible too, which is kind of nice. Okay, so we are looking at chapters 7, 8, and 9 this morning, or this evening. There will necessarily be some overlap between what we reviewed or what we taught last week week with regard to origin, so now you're reading about origin, and it's just not possible to keep them all perfectly aligned, that's fine. And you read about Cyprian this week, and we're going to cover Cyprian this week, so you should have a good understanding of Cyprian by the time we're done. So let's talk about chapter 7 and origin, and what is your kind of general impression of it all, good, the bad, the ugly, the man, his work so forth. Simon. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, page 58 there in the last paragraph. 
where it says in the middle, at the Second Council of Constantinople in, in uh, 553, AD 553, the order was given to destroy his written works, essentially declaring him to be a heretic. And so many things have been lost. So is that a, a shame that we have lost them? Or is that God's providential protection? Interesting question. Yes. The man was prolific in a way that is hard to understand. Right? I think he speaks about it here, isn't it? Yeah. 59 in that uh, paragraph at the top in the middle. One of the most prolific writers in the ancient world, if not of all time. That's a big statement. 800 titles connected to him. That is some serious literary output in a time before word processing. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, so there's n it's indisputable that he was a a brilliant man and, a, and a, had a brain that was really big. So nobody, nobody would dispute that, for sure. What, let's, let's do this way, because there's lots of ways we can throw stones at him. We, we threw a bunch last week. So what commendable things or characteristics can we find in origin? Uh, did you find in origin as you read chapter 7? Did you find anything redeeming about the man? Orthodox and biblical. Okay, very good. He arrived there or not, he wanted to be. Okay, good, thank you. He wanted to be orthodox and biblical. Whether he arrived at his intention or not is another question. Yes, but that was his drive, and that is worthy of emulating. He had the right idea on Scripture. Seems as though he had a right idea on Scripture, at least his approach initially, yes. And he, he got tripped into the whole... Uh, allegorical approach, right? We looked at that last time with the three levels. Notice he's tripartite. Okay, tripartite. Be a great uh, word to look up, or a great thing to look up in your theological dictionary. Let's see, tripartite. I know somebody can Google it faster than I can find it, but that's fine. Substantially faster than I can find it. All right, here we go. Trichotomism. Uh, an adherent of trichotomism is a tripartite. An understanding of human nature divided into three parts, body, soul, and spirit. According to trichotomists, the spirit, the part of a human being that is capable of knowing God, is to be differentiated from the soul, which is the seat of personality. Often numbered among trichotomists are the church fathers, Irenaeus, 19th century biblical scholar Franz Dillich. Viewpoint can be found as well in the Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, so... Just to let you know, your pastor is bipartite. Okay, Pastor Jim uh, is bipartite, which means that he, he understands man to be material and immaterial, um, which is also what I think man is. But tripartite falls within the, doc, within the boundaries of, of um, orthodoxy. Jim is bipartite? He is. <laughs> Indeed. So, notice how Origen used his uh, tripartite view of man to influence his, or explain his allegorical approach. Right? He had the literal, then he had the, um, what do you call it here? We've got to get him. Here it is. Uh, three, page 60 on the bottom. He believed the scripture had three levels of meaning corresponding to humans as body, soul, and spirit. The literal or surface sense corresponds to the body, least important, moral or ethical sense corresponds to the soul, tells us how we ought to live, and the doctrinal or theological sense corresponds to the spirit, tells us what to believe. Okay? So that was how he built it. All right? We read his allegory of the, um, the man who went down to Jericho and was fallen upon by thieves last time. And you saw that that thing got up on two legs and danced all over the place. So, okay, good. Anything else positive we can say about Origen? Uh, he was tortured and persecuted and did not recant. Yes. Yeah, wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? He, uh, let's see, where did we read that? You, you remember? Would have been, what, page 58? Oh, yeah, that's right. His nickname, Adamantius, meaning unyielding or unbreakable. Okay, unyielding or unbreakable. That is a commendable characteristic in a believer, isn't it? 
And it was interesting because he was not unbreakable in body because what happened to him? He, he castrated himself? Uh, that was early on. He was tortured and broken in torture and died shortly after that. Okay, So he was unbreakable not in body but in spirit, whatever, you know, however you want to say that, in his commitment to Christ. They could not torture him into repudiating his allegiance to Christ. Let me tell you what, that is commendable. It is very commendable. We, as you read the next chapter with Cyprian, you saw how commendable that is. Yes, from an early age, his commitment to Christ was very, very strong. He was not just willing, but I would even say desirous of following his father to martyrdom. And how did his mother rescue him? Do you remember? She hid his clothes, and he was too modest to go out without them. Well, modesty saved his life. Okay? Mark that down. Teach it to your children. <laughs> modesty may save your life someday, son. In truth. In truth. Yes. Yes, there are plenty of people that are martyrs for the errors that they believe. So that in and of itself is not um, commendable or validation of truth. Yeah, exactly. Okay? But it is nothing to sneeze at either. Nothing to sneeze at. Okay? One thing to blow yourself up to smithereens in a split second. It's another to be put on the rack and every, every ligament in your body snapped. Okay. So. Okay. Good. Anything else? Comments on origin? First systematic theology, according to this author. First systematic theology. Again, his. Write commentaries. Wrote commentaries. Yes. Right. Right. The despoiling of the Egyptians, which he defined as the use of secular ideas in Christian theology. That terminology still circulates around and often creates mischief, by the way. Um, so you will hear people advocating psychology as a, as a despoiling of the Egyptians in the application to, um, to Christian counseling and the Christian soul. So yeah, but he was the first to, to do that, and, and he used that in reference to what? Say it again? Philosophy. philosophy. Yes. He was a philosopher. In fact, he mastered a number of the philosophical schools, which in and of itself speaks of his brain power. Right. These weren't lightweight things. So, okay. Good. So what's your conclusion? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Kind of a... They say what? He was necessary. Indeed, he was necessary in God's good plan and economy. Yes. Take the good and throw out the bad. Take the good and throw out the bad. Sure. Okay. Good. All right. Well, let's turn to the one that uh, probably I was most interested in getting to tonight, actually. Cyprian of Carthage. Okay. Cyprian of Carthage. What do we know about Cyprian? And you might want to, at the same time, just open your syllabus to page 10 at the top. And there's nothing there but his name and, and his, his dates, but if you decide that there's anything you want to fill in, that would be a place to write it in. Probably a good time, too, to show you him, huh? There he was. I got him to pose long enough for a portrait. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Is that what he looks like? Yeah, I can see the resemblance. Okay. What do we know about Cyprian? Let's just talk biographically first. So let's just deal with him biographically. What do we know biographically about him? Background, upbringing, Christian heritage, or lack thereof. Born into a pagan family. Excuse me? He was born into a pagan family. Born into a pagan family, yes. Mm -hmm. he came to Christ in his 40s. Came to Christ in his 40s. Right? So some can identify with such things. 
Born into a pagan family, raised in poverty or riches? Raised in riches. So he was born into paganism with all that paganism could offer in terms of this life. Yes? That's right. And so he repudiated it and came to faith in Christ in his 40s. How old was he when he died? 58. Which means that his life as a Christian was remarkably short as these things go. Remarkably short. Okay, anything else about him? What was going on in the world at the time? Severe persecution. You remember our ten waves of persecution, how they became increasingly intensified as we approached, you know, uh, waves eight, nine, and ten, even seven, eight, nine, and ten, began to become empire-wide and much more violent. Yes? So, anything else? He was very Catholic in his beliefs, and we will explore that, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. He was Catholic before Catholic. <laughs> he was very Catholic. <laughs> okay. All right. Uber pro-bishop. Yes, uber pro-bishop. I like that. Yes, he was very much committed to the authority of the bishop, wasn't he? Okay. Why? Because he was a bishop. That always helps. <laughs> what was going on? What's, what's running in the background that, that causes that idea to, to become so important to him and many others? So it was very important in dealing with the issue of his ministry, which is the lapsed and the confessors, and we are going to explore that more here momentarily. So yes... But even rolling back before that, what is going on that makes apostolic authority and um, handoff, if I can say it that way, so important? Okay, The genealogy of authority. That's a good term. I like that. May I use it? Is it new with you? It's all free. Everything here is free. Yeah. The air is free. Okay, genealogy of authority. (laughs) The air is free. That's right. Yes, I mean, it's just a huge issue. Who speaks with authority to the issue of the lapsed and the confessors? That's his, you know, problem. But what was going on before that that really initially gave rise to it? Do you remember? Right. Right, so those are the confessors and the lapsed, yep. So I'm going to get there, though. Hang on, still, there's something behind that. Do you remember? What's... Say it again. The priesthood. the priesthood of believers, yes, yes. There was an issue. Do we need priests, or mm-hmm. we all get to decide for ourselves? Right, right. Do you remember back on page 9, Irenaeus? Page 9 at the top. So Irenaeus is early 2nd century, late 1st, late 1st, at the very beginning of the 2nd. And his big issue is Gnosticism, who, is, who are claiming to be able to speak for Christ. Remember, with secret knowledge, we're going to explore Gnosticism later tonight uh, in more detail. And so... Irenaeus is writing against it, and he is the one who really puts forward this idea that, hey, you know what? Uh, I've been discipled by Polycarp, and Polycarp was discipled by whom? By John. So why would you listen to the Gnostics? They can't, they have no pedigree. They have no genealogy of authority, but but I do. And, And this establishes the authority to speak. This is early. The letters have all been written, but they have not been circulated entirely through the empire by this time. 
So it's not like they have a completed New Testament and that's their authority. So who can speak for Christ is a big issue. Okay? So, and it was for Cyprian as well. Okay? You also noticed in there, I don't remember where I read it, but he had a bit of a tiff with the um, Bishop of Rome. Yeah, there it is, page 68. Uh-huh. Stephen, the Bishop of Rome. What was his problem with Stephen? Yeah! Now the genealogy of authority is beginning to migrate into one authority. And so he, he won't tolerate that. He won't tolerate that. Okay? But it's not long before that is more than tolerated. And we end up with what we have and are familiar with today, right? Who is the, who is the Bishop of Rome? It is the Pope. Okay? All right. Anything else? All right. Well, let's talk about the pressing, the pressing issue. And maybe we should say this on verse six, uh, page sixty-five, first sentence, second, uh, second sentence, for, uh, second paragraph. For him, the issues were primarily practical, not intellectual. Primarily practical, not intellectual. For Origen, the issues were primarily intellectual, not practical. Origen was an apologist. He was, he was a defender of the faith. He was, he was presenting Christianity in a way that would be intelligible to the philosophers of his day, to the upper classes. And that was his ministry, as it were. But for Cyprian, Cyprian, he's a, just like an old pastor guy in a small church somewhere. And he's not really interested in dealing with the, the, you know, the, the issues of defending the faith to the, to the, uh, to the intellectuals of, of Roman society. That's not his jam. Right? He is concerned about the sheep. And in particular, he's concerned about the issue of the lapsed. Of the lapsed. So, there was a massive persecution. Again, turn back to page 6. Thank you. And there, so that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Yes. 249 to 251. Decius. All right. The first empire-wide persecution, no place to run, to speak of. And in particular, Decius was no longer looking to put them into the, into the games, into the theater with lions and have them eaten and that sort of thing. That was not his approach to get them to relinquish this, what he saw as a, as a heretical religious idea. Remember we talked about the genius of, of the empire, or the genius of the emperor, was this idea of a divine spirit behind the emperor. And so once a year, all good Romans would offer a sacrifice to the emperor, to the genius of the emperor. And it was mandatory. And you had to have proof of it. Another good book, by the way. Looked like that, basically. It's amazing that that has survived. Okay, document. It's called uh, a libellus, and what it was it had to be signed by two witnesses. And what it was was a statement that John Brown offered a sacrifice on this date, and we sign our names as witnesses to his sacrifice. You had to have it and be able to present it when asked for. Okay, where is your Labellus, where is your proof 
that you have offered the sacrifice. If you cannot produce it, you will be arrested. And not only will you be arrested, but you will be tortured until you either agree to offer it or you recant. Well, same thing. You recant of the Christian faith and, and offer it. What happened? Some people would not offer the sacrifice, regardless of the torture. And they suffered terribly. And it's hard for us to imagine the kind of barbaric <laughs> acts that, that mankind is capable of. But yes, wrenching limbs out of socket and branding with irons and, you know, slicing off ears and just all kinds of just horrible things, leaving them mangled if they survive. And so what happened with a lot of them? They signed, they, they offered the, the pinch. I mean, maybe they had their fingers crossed behind their back, as it were. But they offered it. Or they bribed someone to give them one, saying they had offered it when they hadn't. It was another approach. <coughs> but during the three years of the persecution, the church was being devastated. What did Cyprian do? He ran away. He ran into the desert and hid. Right? He ran into the desert and hid. When the persecution lifted, he returned. And now, as the, as the bishop, he is faced with a massive problem, right? So it's Carthage is North Africa. He's faced with a massive problem. And the problem is those that had lapsed, many of them, wanted back into the church and wanted access to the communion table. And you can kind of hear their plea. It might be something like, well, Peter betrayed the Lord, and he was restored and received back. What about us? And the confessors said, Nothing doing. Nothing doing. Look at my broken son. Look at my broken wife, daughter, husband. Nothing doing. He who denies me before men, I will deny him before what? His father who is in heaven. No way. But you got more on the outside than on the inside. So it's a huge problem. It's easy. All you do is create another denomination. Yeah, that's right. Problem solved. Problem solved. Another denomination. Yes. And so for him, the underlying issue is the unity of the church. He can't conceive of Two churches. I mean, this is the biggest crisis to hit the church since the Jerusalem Council. When the question there was, is there going to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? There is one. Is there going to be a confessing church and a lapsed church? Mm -mm. So you have this very practical man with a pastoral heart and he has to find a way out of it. What would you do? Listen, they're not just, you know, kind of walking in and saying, hey, I, you know, I offered it, but it's like nothing. I mean, these people are broken that they deny Christ. They are broken. What are you going to do? Was it assumed that because you ran, you denied Christ? That's interesting, isn't it? No, not necessarily. You would have denied Christ if you offered the sacrifice. So fleeing persecution is always a viable, 
biblically viable option. Jesus told the disciples themselves, there's a time to flee. What a lot of people here did come from other states. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So flight is biblically legitimate, for sure. Okay. So what's he going to do? Uh, I would imagine, yes. Yes. But Cyprian's solution became the preferred approach. Authority over geographic areas. Yes. So originally, Episcopos, which we would understand as the elder of a local congregation, eventually becomes, by the second century, over multiple congregations of an area. Yep. But it seems like the point would be if, if that graphic situation. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... We see the, you know, the advantages and then the unintended consequences. So the, the transmission of authority through the bishops uh, was used of God to, to guard the church. But you're right, they had lost the role of, the, of a council of elders at a local level who would be much closer to the activity and better able to judge the circumstances. Very true. There, there, would, there would be not as many as today <laughs> under the authority of the bishop, yes. Sure, partials. No, we'll, we'll get to that in some weeks from here, and we'll talk about the process of canonization. So I'll just tell you right now, the canon exists the moment the, the apostle puts his pen down, but it doesn't take a while to circulate. It hadn't been, it hadn't been collated. Yes. Yeah. Not till 360. Well, we'll get with it. We'll get to it. Okay. So it's a, it's a thorny issue. I think you can just maybe even feel a little bit of the thorniness of it all. I mean, imagine if it ripped through North Idaho. So what was the solution? Not only can creep in, did creep in. <laughs> it was like the door was thrown wide open, and we're going to talk about that. I mean, these are the unintended consequences. They, they came from the, the heartfelt, I am willing to grant this man, you know, the, the best of motives in the, in the solution to a problem that was going to tear the church apart. And so what was his solution? Do you, do you remember? Yes, exactly. The lapsed Christian could be readmitted to the church and the table following a period of repentance that was evidenced through penance. Okay. Now I use the word penance, and all who have Roman Catholics in their background are going, "Yeah, I don't want any part of that. I don't either." But it was a solution. We repented. We're, we, you know, we're, we're, what do you want from me? Tears are rolling down my face. I, I bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, what does that look like? Well, here, there's some things. <laughs> That is not a bad idea, by the way. The problem is that over time that begins to twist and, and get barnacles encrusting it until it becomes the mechanism and means the repentance gets left behind and the penance substitutes. And now, you know, it's ex opere operato. It, it, it confers grace through the, through the activity itself. He is famous for, in his understanding of the church and the unity of the church, for that expression, he cannot have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. Okay, He cannot have God as his father who has not the church as his mother. In other words, there is no salvation outside of the church. Is that true? It's a trick question. Well, 
so it began to morph into that. Yes. Yeah. See, it is true if you assume the visible church equals the true church. There's a one-for-one one overlap. One cannot be connected to Christ and not connected to the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the church. It doesn't come from the church. No, 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 that's later, that's a, a later encrustment of his original ideas. That's right. Yes. So we live in the age of peak, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Independence. I don't need to be part of any church. Just me and Jesus out on the mountain by ourselves. No. No. I wouldn't want to be handcuffed to you in the rapture, let me tell you, if that's your approach. Yes. Yes. So the idea is, his idea of unity, which is an important biblical idea, became in, in, in wrapped up in the notion of the unity of the bishops. And the, and the bishops had authority. They had authority to administer the Lord's table, which by this time, and in Cyprian's teaching, um, the, the beginning idea is that it was the, the re-sacrifice of Christ. Chuck? Yes. The, the beginning of the process, although their buildings were all being destroyed and burned down. Yeah. Boy, I'm sure glad that Jesus said, I will build my church, right? Because <laughs> otherwise there wouldn't be a hope. Yes. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. That's right. Cyprian's not a legitimate bishop anymore because of what happened with him. He scrammed. He didn't stay. Page uh, 69 lays out a, a number of his ideas. These are, these are um, in their infancy stage. They've they become much more developed uh, through time, much more encrusted, become very much Roman Catholic theology. But today, but you can see that, uh, uh, for example, the first full paragraph on page 69, not only was there no salvation outside the church, according to Cyprian, but salvation was a lifelong process that took place only within the church. It begins with baptism, particularly that of infants. Okay? So by this time, infant baptism has now become a practice. Yes? Yes? That's right. So what was the purpose of the baptism, the infant baptism? It was to, to begin the process of salvation, and infant baptism expunged original sin. So it, it became salvific. A little further down, he, he talks about, he was one of the first, uh, what is that, the third paragraph, second sentence, he was one of the first to clearly state what came to be called the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. So it's amazing how far the church has devolved. <laughs> and how rapidly. Yeah, I mean, add some persecution to the mix. <laughs> right? Add, add false conversions during the periods of, of peace, relative peace. Yes? It's 2023, but... It's 2023. 2023. 2023 doesn't say what that says, but... Yeah, it's a typo. Yeah, I read it myself, and I thought, ah, I don't recall that saying that. <laughs> it indeed does it. Then I tried 1223. No, that's not it. <laughs> But it is 2023. Yes, they are. The seeds, the seeds are scattered in the moment of crisis. Did he love the Lord? I think he probably did. Did he love people? Yeah, I think he did. Was he confronted with a massive problem that he felt that it was his responsibility to try to solve? Yeah, I think it was. Did he come up with a good solution? Not when I look back a thousand years later. <laughs> I don't believe I've ever heard of a church split that was not about authority and the misuse of it. <laughs> so let's make sure if we, when we're throwing stones, we're careful. But Okay. Let's see. He himself was uh, martyred. By Valer under Valerian. Okay. 
Okay, so he died a martyr himself. He was beheaded after about ten years of ministry. Okay, so he didn't didn't run the second time. Stood his ground. Tell you what, we're gonna we're gonna call an audible here, and uh, we are going to not discuss Athanasius tonight. Looking at the clock, some things I want to cover, and um, we will get to Athanasius next week when we talk about the Nicene Creed. So, you've read it, you're familiar, so that's fine, hang on to it. For next time, it'll be chapters 10, 11, and 12, which will introduce you to some individuals that are not in your syllabus and we're not going to cover. So, But we are going to cover Athanasius and the Arian controversy in some detail next week, so let's just kind of hang on to it for that, okay? So, with that said, in the time remaining, we are at page 10, letter C in the outline, heretical sects, S-E-C-T-S. I know. I know. I know. Gnosticism. Let's talk about Gnosticism. We've been introduced to it already, so this is kind of a a bit of a review, but teased out a little more. So Gnosticism teaches salvation through secret knowledge. Gnosis, the word knowledge, formed via a blending of Greek philosophy with Jewish Christian thought. So it is a syncretistic religion, syncretistic. The Gnostics believe that matter is evil, spirit is good. That is a, a, a Plato's philosophy. They believe that one true transcendent God, who they identify as light, emanated or birthed the series of lesser deities who grew increasingly evil. Eventually, one of those lesser deities, or demiurges, as they were called, was called Yahweh. And he is the harsh and evil God of the Old Testament. This harsh and evil God, Yahweh, created the material universe and entrapped particles of light in human bodies. These spiritual people, pneumatikoi, or the spirit people, need to be awakened in order to inherit their desires. There's a lower grade of people, Sukakoi, the soul people, need to work for whatever salvation they may be able to gain. And finally, the lowest grade of people, the Sarkakoi, or the flesh people, are strictly material people, and they have no hope of salvation. In the process of pursuing knowledge for salvation, Gnostics seem to go in one of two directions, either indulging the body or abusing it. For example, some believe sexual activity diffused or fragmented their light particles, and thus they became aesthetics. Okay, so they refrained from all sexual activity. Others believed spiritual awareness was transmitted through sexual activity, so they encouraged promiscuous sexual activity. That would be uh, in keeping with the mystery cults of Paul and Jesus' day, where you, they had the temple prostitutes and temple prostitution and so forth, was a religious activity. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, do you remember that uh, book? Uh, what was his name? Brown, I think, was the author. Yeah? And then it became a movie. So in there, he put forth the Gnostic idea that Sexual climax is the moment you touch God. So that is the moment you touch God. This sharp dualism caused them to teach that Jesus only seemed to have a human body. He couldn't have a human body because the body is material and material is inherently evil. So contra 1 John 4. Or that the divine spirit came upon him at his baptism and left him at the cross. Modern-day Gnosticism is behind the New Age movement and is the worldview portrayed in the Star Wars movies where we encounter what? The Force. 
the force. Okay, it is a thoroughly Gnostic viewpoint. That is Gnosticism. It has never been eradicated. It goes underground, sometimes for centuries, and then reemerges. And we are definitely in a period of reemergence of Gnostic ideas. Marcion Do you look evil enough for you? Was a prominent second century Gnostic who mutilated the scriptures, accepting only the Gospel of Luke minus the birth narrative. Why no birth narrative? Because the birth narrative (laughs) narrates the the birth of Christ, and so, right, Jesus can't have a body. Only appear to have one, so he hacked that out. In ten of Paul's epistles, he he cut out the pastoral epistles because they speak about God as Creator, and from which he removed any references to the Father as Creator. His mutilation of the Scriptures pushed the Church towards an officially recognized canon. Okay, so important point. He intended it for evil. God intended it for good. Marcion and his ilk by mutilating the scriptures that were in circulation forced the true believers, the orthodox, to begin to seriously wrestle with what constitutes scripture. How the Old Testament for the Christian was never in jeopardy, never in doubt, but the New Testament, what is it? What what are the boundaries of the canon? And so Marcion, in his attempt to eradicate the truth, forced the church to define the truth. Okay? Next up, we have this character. We'll go out a little bit because his robe is kind of spectacular. It's impressive, don't you think? Is that a propeller on the top? I don't really, I don't think it's a propeller. I think it's a gold cross, but yeah, could be a propeller. (laughs) There we go. Yes. Next we encounter Montanus. So this character, he is an interesting guy. So he was formerly a pagan priest, converted to Christianity from the region of Phrygia in in Asia Minor. This is Turkey. He believed himself to be an appointed prophet of God through which the paraclete spoke. The paraclete is the Holy Spirit. So he is self-proclaimed the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. He gathered uh, these two ladies to him, Priscilla and Maximilla, who were female disciples who left their husbands to join him and spoke new prophecy via, via trance and ecstasy. Ecstasy, thank you. It's easier for you to say that. And their new prophecy was considered ongoing revelation. So we're still seeing these attacks on the scriptures. So they are now speaking forth in these ecstatic trances, these prophecies which they say are scripture. Montanus is speaking forth the Holy Spirit of God. Is his, he's the mouthpiece, so forth. They were declared schismatic and were excommunicated about AD 230. Tertullian was their most famous convert. Isn't that interesting? Joining them around 8206. Augustine, here's him. We gotta we gotta blow him up. He's got an impressive hat too. Augustine reports that Tertullian later left them to found a group called the Tertullianists. 
What attracted Tertullian to, the, to Montanism? Well, uh, doctrinally, they were very aesthetic, aesthetic, as was he, with a strong emphasis on personal holiness. It was very important to Tertullian was personal holiness. Why? Because there was a lot of immorality in the church. A lot of it. These Montanists stood against worldliness and corruption in the church. They were looking around and seeing the kind of corruption that we were just talking about, you know, occurring in the, in the days of Cyprian and so forth. And so they spoke out against it. They stood against it, so forth. They also taught that there would be a thousand-year millennium. That is important to hang on to because that is going to later be hung around our neck as a reason to reject premillennialism, that it was a Montanist doctrine. Okay? But they did. They, they believed in a thousand-year millennium. So that's a Montanism. They accused the church leaders of chasing the Holy Spirit into a book by trying to limit divine inspiration to the apostolic writings. Okay? That was the gist of their beef, is that they had chased the Holy Spirit into a book. Sounds like the modern-day charismatics. They would make a similar kind of allegation. Okay? So, the Montanists. Next is Donatism. This was a schismatic movement originating in North Africa, and it grew out of the Diocletian persecution, which was the most severe of all persecutions. Corruption in the church and the handing over by the bishops of the copies of the scriptures to be burned in order to avoid persecution led to the schism. Donatism lasted until the 7th century when they were wiped out by the Muslim conquests of North Africa. Okay, so the Donatist movement was wiped out. Donatists believed in, now listen to this. Maybe you'd say, hey, you know what? I think I could have hung out with these dudes. Donatists believed in freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, a regenerate church membership, purity of the church by the practicing of church discipline, and a rejection of infant baptism. Not bad. They believed that in order for the sacraments to be valid, the priest had to be holy and in proper standing with the church. So they rejected ex opera operata, the idea that it, that it was in the power lay in the sacrament itself, regardless of whether the priest was a believer or a heretic. It didn't. They said, oh yeah, that matters. <laughs> that matters. They were persecuted by Constantine in 8317 after the councils and Conciliation failed to win them back to the fold. So, external empire-wide unity was a huge issue at this point in time, the 4th century. We live in a time of (laughs) anything but external unity. Right? You get to look, look at the charts at the end of your syllabus and you, you begin to look at the family trees and you go, my goodness, these, these trees, they split every few years. But that was unheard of in, in, in these days. It was one church. And so external unity was very, very important to them to the point where they would enforce it using civil penalties. Augustine of Hippo became their chief opponent developing the Catholic theory of an invisible church in the midst of a visible one, which was called society, and holding that the sacraments were inherently a channel of grace regardless of the spiritual standing of the one administering them. So both of those ideas, which are very much part of Roman Catholic theology, you can thank Augustine for. Okay? He developed the notion of the invisible church. So the visible church is all of society, All of society was Christian. You're born into the society. You're born through infant baptism. You're born into the church. So the church, society, and the church are overlapping circles. But Augustine taught that within that visible church, there's an invisible church. Okay? Yeah? 
to account for the corruption in the visible church. So we would kind of adopt a modified version of that. We would say that there is the visible church, which is Kootenai Community Church and its membership role. Um, but we would also grant the possibility that not all members are regenerate. Why would we grant that possibility? Because we we can't we don't have the knowledge of God in such things, do we? Right. So we practice <clears throat> restorative church discipline for the purpose of recovering an errant believer, or if they through the process continually harden their hearts and prove themselves to be unbelievers, then they are disfellowshipped. Okay, let's introduce this. We have time to introduce it and then we will come back to it again. They all seem to go to the same hat shop. So this, <laughs> this is Arianism. This is Arianism. You have all encountered Arianism, probably within the last six months. So let's take a look at it. The date of Arius' birth is unknown. This troublesome priest from North Africa brought the church to its most critical crisis since the Jerusalem Council. Okay. As a thoroughgoing Greek rationalist, relying on the teaching of Origen that the Son was subordinate to the Father, Arius taught that Christ was a created being and thus less than God. Okay? A created being. A very, very, very high created being. Just under God. He was excommunicated by Bishop Alexander and then condemned by a synod in Antioch in 8325. Arius took his teaching to the people in the form of a catchy song and jingle, which is the best way to teach theology. <laughs> Put a good tune with it. And that's what they did. They would go about singing their heresies, and the tunes were really catchy, and it spread. When the church leaders were unable to resolve the crisis, Constantine weighed in and called the first ecumenical council at Nicaea. At the council, Arius opposed by Alexander, who had Athanasius in his entourage, a very young man at this time, I think he was 20, young deacon. Arius was condemned and banished. From his place of banishment, Arius continued to write and spread his heresy to an ever-increasing circle of political and ecclesiastical leaders. After the council in 8328, Athanasius became Bishop of Alexandria and became an unremitting foe of Arius and Arianism. In 8332, this is near the end of Constantine's rule, so he died in 337, so five years before, Constantine opened direct conversation with Arius and based upon his satisfaction with Arius' confession and explanation of his position, restored him by the Senate of Jerusalem to take communion. Okay? So we have the emperor restoring him to fellowship. Arius died in 335. His heresy lives on to plague the church even to this day. Arianism remains within the church today is found in both Unitarianism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? And the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, Mormons are not Aryan. Um, oh, I, I'm sorry. Some of, the, some of the ideas. Right. Well, I missed it. What did you say? I said they are all white. But... Yeah, they are white, but that's a different thing, yeah. Yeah. Why is Mormonism not included since Jesus is the brother of Satan? Um, because that's not what Arius taught. So it's a different heresy. 
Yeah, it's just a, it's just a different heresy. Let's do this. Let's take a peek at what was handed to you. Major views of the Trinity. Okay. So we have a few, a few minutes to look through. So these are these are major views. The chart has five of them. And um, who was their proponents and who are their adherents? Okay, so we begin with dynastic, dynamic monarchianism, in which we find the modern Unitarians today. So their perception of God's essence is that the Son and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial, that means of the same substance or essence, with the Father's divine essence only as impersonal attributes. Impersonal attributes. The divine dunamis or power came upon the man Jesus, but he was not God in the strict sense of the word. So this is modern Unitarianism. Okay? Yep. Uh, power. Yep. Get the word dynamite from it. Yep. We have modalistic monarchianism. There you see the United Pentecostals. That's the Jesus only movement. And I penciled them in for you, T.D. Jakes. Okay. T.D. Jakes. You all know who that character is, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's modalistic monarchianism. So. They are different names, so the Son and the Spirit are different names, but identical with the unified simplex God. The three names are the three modes by which God reveals himself. So that's the idea of modalism, that God reveals himself in different modes in different to, to accomplish different things. But they... Um, Uh, do not acknowledge the, the, the godness, if I can say it that way, of Christ and the Spirit. Okay? God is not three persons, just moving over a column. God is not three persons, but one person with three different names and corresponding roles following one another like parts of a drama. And we have subordinationism. These are the modern Jehovah's Witnesses. Inherent oneness of God's nature is properly identifiable with the Father only, the Son and the Spirit are discrete entities who do not share the divine essence. You can see Tertullian's understanding, which was immature and was further fleshed out by Athanasius. And then you can kind of see those that followed Athanasian Christology, which was codified in the Council of Nicaea in 325, where God is, God's being is perfectly united and simplex of one essence, homoousia, we'll talk about it. This essence of, the, of deity is held in common by Father, Son, and Spirit. The three persons are consubstantial, same substance, same essence, co-inherent, co-equal, and co-eternal. You can see how they're stacking up adjectives here to try to fence this thing off. The divine substance is said to occur simultaneously in three modes of being or hypostasis. As such, the Godhead exists undivided in divided persons. Okay, that's an important statement. In other words, that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, dwells in the Spirit, dwells in the Father. He's not diffused. It's not a third, a third, a third, or you know whatever. It's the fullness of deity. As such, the Godhead exists uh, undivided and divided persons. This view contemplates an identity in nature and cooperation and function without the denial of the distinctions of persons in the Godhead. Okay? And then you can see, on the, as you go to the second page, just their further clarifications on how they saw Father, Son, and Spirit. All right? So you can... Take it home, noodle it around a bit, stick it in your syllabus. So we will, in the next week, in the beginning of the councils, we will go back and pick up Athanasius and his 
interesting biography. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.